Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. That is you. You are joined as always by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be the very brightly coloured, sprightly girl sitting opposite me. Well, we looked a bit silly today when we went into our cafe before we recorded because you're in a bright blue jumper, I'm in a bright pink jumper, and I thought we looked like goddamn cartoon characters. We look look like a sad interpretation of the Wiggles because we've both kind of got high necks as well, like Mine could be mistaken for a skivvy if you were very far away. Oh, so could mine. Yeah, we look like the Wiggles. We could just be a new addition to the Wiggles. A light blue and bright pink (laughs) wiglets. Please have us, Emma. Emma will always be my favourite wiggle. Coming up on the show, though, Zara, the Anna Wintour tell-all causing a ruckus in the fashion industry. Plus, how a pandemic has put OnlyFans in the spotlight. And then, can a decimated media industry saved. I do not know. We'll get to that at the end of the show. But first of all, I have a convo starter for you. Hit me. You're still traumatised from your convo starter of what's your best joke last week. (laughs) Not your best joke. What's the best joke you can remember? But alas, onwards. I promise this one's less humiliating for you. It was humiliating for us both, but I feel like you definitely probably came out a little bit more embarrassed. I certainly did. Just get me on with this. (laughs) All right. I want to ask, what chronotype are you? I had never heard of this before an episode of The Briefing, which is a news podcast I've been listening to lots lately. I actually recommended that podcast a few weeks ago. They had a whole conversation about the future of working from home or working from offices and what's going to happen after the pandemic. But one of the main conversations was the different chronotypes. Humans, apparently, when it comes to work and their circadian rhythm, fit into three different categories. Are you still with me? Not really, but keep going. (laughs) Three categories, and they all reflect like your natural peaks and troughs of when you feel energy. And we're going to use birds today. I'm not really a bird person, but we'll use birds. So the first chronotype are larks. These are the people who wake up around 5.30 every morning, love getting work done in the morning and despise nighttime, like would never go to bed after say like 9.30, 10. We have middle birds. This is the average Joe human being who say that the nine to five working day is perfect for them. The majority of people sit in that category, of course. Then we have owls. Owls are people who get their best work done at night. They are not productive at all before say like 10, 11 a.m., They get their very best selves after 9pm when the sun is down. 20% of people fit into the the owl category. What are you? A lark, a middle bird or an owl? Okay, firstly, that's the longest conversation starter (laughs) I've yet heard. Secondly, you're asking me this, but you absolutely know the answer. I'm a middle bird. I'm a nine to fiver. I'm pretty boring like that. I feel like I was built for structures. Like I was built to sit within structures. A nine to five workday, I've kind of managed to find a way for my energy levels to sit very neatly at nine to five. I didn't mind school. I didn't mind the 
structure of school. Can you kind of see the connection I'm trying to make? Yes, I can. I mean, this is a good time for us to have a very important business discussion because you and I are very different. We are so different. So for those wondering at home, Michelle is most definitely an owl. I am an owl and I love being an owl. You always try to get the best out of me at like 9am. Like you are very gung-ho. You are always calling me every morning and I love you. I love our phone calls. I call you, I reckon, at 8.50 every morning, particularly (laughs) while we haven't been working in the office. I just can't. I know. I can't do anything at that hour. I need it to be 8.50 p.m. I don't need you to do anything. I need you to give me structure for my day. See, I need to be able to call you and be like, this is what I think we should get done in the next, well, to be honest, I would say eight hours, but with you, it's like the next 15 hours. I do my work during the day. You do it at night. A moment of pure, unadulterated honesty on the podcast for a second. Does it stress you out when you want something done by 5 p.m.? Say, upload the next day's podcast, <laughs> this is, but I don't do it till 11 p.m. This is an amazing convo starter because, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because we've never had this conversation. The thing that stresses me out, and you know what, let's do this right now. The thing that stresses me out the most. Are we breaking up? No, we're not breaking up. <laughs> the thing that stresses me out the most is sometimes, yes, if you haven't uploaded something, like if we say, all right, you're uploading the episode before it goes live tomorrow and I want to go to bed at 9.45 and it's not there. I wonder what my responsibility is in that moment. Like, do I call her and check that it's going to be done? Is that really needy of me? Also, I'm like, if you don't do the work in the same hours that I do, then do I have to like check back in and like we have to still talk about the work after no, hours? No, no, no. It's my choice to work but late. Then, I will. But I then will. I feel guilty. <laughs> I feel guilty at night because you're working and I'm like, fuck, should I be working? No, you shouldn't be working. It's just my prime time. I do want the listeners to know I've never fucked up. It's not like I've ever forgotten to put a podcast up. No, that's up. me. <laughs> I'm I mean, the one that fucks it's up. It's happened once where you might have fucked up, but that's not a big deal. Like we're friends here. We're all good. But yes, I love working at night and I refuse to apologize apologize for that. I do need to ask you, what are your recommendations for the week? I have a couple of recommendations for this week. I listened to two really great podcasts, both very, very different, Mish. The first one was an episode of What the Fuck with Mark Marin. I don't know if anyone read this news this week, but the director Lynn Shelton died and I hadn't heard a lot about Lynn Shelton, but Lynn Shelton had directed a couple of movies like Your Sister's Sister. She'd also very recently directed a few episodes of Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she was in a relationship with Mark Marin. And Mark Marin went on mic just two or three days after she had died of something quite shocking. It was like, uh, he didn't really say at the time, he said it seemed like some sort of random blood disorder. He thought <sighs> she had strep throat, so it was very, very shocking. It, I mean, it's never a good time to pass away, but God, you've got to feel for people during this period, don't you, when mm. you can't grieve with people around you. Anyway, Mark Marin met Lynn Shelton in 2015 when he interviewed her on his podcast. Oh, no, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh, no, you are, you're right. Excuse I'm it. such a sook. I feel like I can't even no. hear this without getting upset. So Keep going. she was mad married at the time and he I, I can't remember if he was in a relationship or not but he has this habit or this kind of tradition with his podcast that when someone passes away he reshares the episode under without a paywall and so he got on and he gave this oh, seven or eight minute monologue at the start and it is oh you are crying it is don't if you can't don't listen to it in the mood you're in now if you're already crying about this it is one of the most searing pieces of audio Michelle I have ever listened to it is so sad but it is so strong like I can never get over how some people have such grace and such dignity when something so terrible has happened and then I listened to the interview and it's the first time they've ever met and they're not together in that interview of course like I said but it is it's insane listening like it is an incredible piece of audio and I couldn't recommend it more do you want something a bit lighter? Can I have some tissues? I know. I'm actually crying. I'm such a sook. That sounds so beautiful. I, I will listen to that when I'm in a more clear headspace. And space. it's a beautiful tribute to Lynn. Like it's a beautiful interview and all I wanted to do was find out more about her work and the stuff she's done with film and TV. So I, like I said, I couldn't recommend it more. The other thing that I really loved that I put on my Instagram this week was an episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day with Daisy Edgar-Jones from Normal People. Oh, my it, gal. It was beautiful, Mish. Like it was such a beautiful episode. So Daisy Edgar-Jones comes across as very self-effacing, kind of chronically unsure of herself, quite shy, not used to the fame that is coming her way and just like a very kind of sensitive soul, like a really beautifully sensitive soul and it's just a really lovely chat so I couldn't recommend that more too. How old is Daisy Edgar-Jones? It seems like she would only be in her early 20s, I reckon. If I had to say, I'd say like 25 but now we're going to have to do a live Google, aren't we? I'm doing a live Google. She's 22. She's She's just 22. She was 21 like... 
a day ago. Yeah, wow. That is that is so young. See, I reckon even more reason to listen to this interview because she comes across as incredibly mature. That's a lot to go through so young to become so famous. Of course, fame can be great for so many people, but to deal with that amount of attention and noise around her would be quite confronting. I hope she's doing okay with it. Yeah, I wonder if it would be made easier by the fact she's in isolation. So is kind of in the same share house, living with her housemates, the same sort of setting that she's always been in before. But then we'll be more pronounced sorry to cut you off will it be more pronounced when she then leaves the house and suddenly everyone knows who she is she's almost like not a household name but amongst our generation she'd be very noticeable and very recognizable that that sudden shift might be so pronounced but I think that would happen if she wasn't in isolation or not like if this there would always be a time where you walk out of the house and suddenly everyone knows you like for someone like her with such a sharp rise there would always be that point at least she's kind of got time to get her head around it yeah totally what about you what are you recommending this week well on the last two months episodes I have given like product recommendations and this week I'm coming in hot with three content recommendations I'm back better than ever on yeah I have two books that I've read in the last week which I really highly recommend the first one is the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo that is written by Taylor Jenkins Reid Taylor Jenkins Reid is like the author of the moment I feel she also wrote Daisy and the Six she's had so many <gasps> did she write that too yeah oh my goodness I didn't even know I've seen those books around so much yeah she is exploring She's doing really well. If anyone's interested in Hollywood and celebrity, which I'm guessing basically everyone listening to this right now, I highly recommend reading that book. I'll put a link to buy it in our show notes. I also recommend, I'm halfway through this, but I'm loving it, complete 180 on that last recommendation, which was quite sugary. The Alice Network by Kate Quinn, which is set with two characters in like war times in Europe. Very, very different, but a searing, poignant important but also easy somehow read from Kate Quinn I think that's a beautiful novel and then finally a podcast episode this one's from She's on the Money you guys will recognize that name because we produced She's on the Money in season one Victoria Devine produced it in-house for season two but she released an episode lately which was called What Not to Do with Your Money During a Crisis all about COVID-19 and kind of not making rash decisions with investments and things like that and I think it's a really helpful really important episode that Victoria put out in this crisis so I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. Beautiful and just before we get into the episode and I promise you we have an absolute bumper episode for you today Mish we have news. We We finally have some fucking news. We told you guys a couple of weeks ago through a not so subtle Instagram post that we had just about finished writing a book. We are set to announce the name of that book what the book is about and it's pre-order link tomorrow morning. We absolutely are. If you want to be the first to know exactly what's and I have written about and why subscribe to our newsletter we'll be sending out an exclusive newsletter to those subscribers tomorrow morning which is Tuesday the 26th of May at 8 a.m so if you want to know first be on that newsletter subscription database we will send that out first thing tomorrow morning we cannot wait to share it because it honestly feels like I don't know because it's been consuming us Zara I feel like everyone else would know about it because our work is so public but this has been a secret since March 2019 it's crazy to think how long it's been that we've been working on this behind the scenes yeah and we've been itching to share it so I'm so so excited just to to share what the book is about why we like you said Mish why we decided to write it and how you can pre-order it so that is tomorrow morning as Mish said at 8am we will put a link in the show notes and on our Instagram stories to subscribe to our newsletter so you are first to find out but Michelle on to the show let's start with an Anna Winter tell-all because of course. Yes, for anyone who missed this, Andre Leon Talley, who is the former creative director of US Vogue, announced that he has of course written a memoir all about his time in the fashion industry. It is out this month and it has some seriously juicy details about exactly what working in fashion is like, particularly working as Anna Wintour's right-hand man. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like the kind of excerpts and facts and juicy tidbits that have been pulled from the book into the media in the last couple of weeks have been pretty astounding. Some of his quotes have been pretty astounding and we will get to those. But it's interesting to me, this is actually Andre's second book. He's written, is it? Yeah, so he's written one already. And he said, that book is something I'm immensely proud of. 
And if you read that book, you'll truly get a sense of what shaped my personality and my aesthetic eye early on. But I still had to bite my tongue about certain people for fear of reprisal. So the point of this one is not so much about how he was crafted or how he kind of built the career that he did, even though I think that seems to be a big thread. But also there are little sprinklings of kind of, what do you call it? Gossip? Gossip. I would call it large dollops based on what (laughs) I've seen online. This is awesome. I love this so much because as you just said, there is a book where he kind of bit his tongue. He is now 70 years old. He is now retired. He's not really working with Vogue or any of the major fashion houses that he once was. And he has let loose. And I swear to God, I want everyone to do this in older age. Absolutely. But like, I don't know. Like, what's the point anymore? Why would you not? You just got to like let loose. Legacy. Legacy is why. Mm, Nah, I'd prefer the gossip. Yeah, we would prefer the gossip. (laughs) But I do have to say, if you've had fractured relationships with people, right? If you've had a fractured relationship with someone, there is nothing to say that on your deathbed or in the months before you die, you can't mend that. But if you write a book and you kind of go to town on someone globally, I feel like that relationship can't be repaired. I get that, but it's not like he's going to town on his sister. He's going to town on people he worked with. And those two things are not really the same. Yeah, you can find best friends in work. He clearly didn't. All those relationships seem like they're burnt to dust now anyway. Why wouldn't you capitalise and write a juicy book that people like you and me can read and find so much joy and entertainment out of? You know, you're kind of right. I bet these people are very well protected. Speaking of, I feel like we've been dangling in carrot for the last three (laughs) minutes without actually getting to the point. One of the quotes that really stood out to me from Andre was about Anna Wintour and he revealed that he had been left with huge emotional and psychological scars from his relationship with longtime friend Anna Wintour and he said that he feels she is not capable of human kindness. Mac. Do you think that's about the most offensive thing you can say about someone? Because if you're saying that someone is not capable of human kindness, then you're basically calling them a psychopath. Or a sociopath. I always get confused between the two. Psychopaths like murdering people. Sociopaths just like don't really understand people. I'm sure I'm going to have so many psychologists <laughs> email me about that and tell me how wrong I was, but that's Remember, basically the premise. Plus or minus 10%. <laughs> yeah, so he did go to town at Anna Wintour and I agree with you. I think telling the world that someone is incapable of kindness is painting them in a quite demonic way. I mean, she's had the moniker of an ice queen for so long and this definitely plays in into that so completely. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because I'd always assume the public image and the brand was the ice queen, but you never really know what's underneath that. But he's saying, no, no, what's underneath that is exactly what you see. He also said, I wonder when she goes home at night, is she miserable? Does she feel alone? <gasps> Vanessa Friedman wrote a pretty interesting column in the New York Times. She's a their fashion writer and is so, so clever and writes so, so beautifully. She calls it poisonous fabulosity, which I thought was a very beautiful way to kind of capture what's going on. She also noted, his aside, that he said Anna Winter was never really passionate about clothes. Power was her passion. Interesting. I'm not surprised by that. I don't know why. And I no hatred here. Like, I'm also not sure if conversations about how nice or not nice bosses are is really that helpful. Like, I find it interesting on a gossipy, lowbrow level. But as far as judging women who are cutthroat and love power, there are dozens and dozens more men out there who prefer the exact same things. I think we find it more newsworthy when it does come from a woman because we expect her to be soft and feminine and all of the things that maternal. Being- Yeah, maternal, being motherly. And I don't think Anna Wintour puts that out, which is her prerogative. One thing, I mean, I'm going to do a complete flip on what I just said that I can't get past is that Anna Wintour does sound like a simply horrible boss in that she apparently staged an intervention with Andre Leon Talley's loved ones, encouraging him to lose weight. She told him to go to the gym. This is the quote from the book from Andre Leontelli. I wasn't offended and it wasn't out of nowhere. Fashion at the time was obsessed with thinness. I'd gained weight in Durham and brought my binge eating habits back to New York with me. My clothes fittings made clear to me exactly how big I was getting and Anna Wintour's concerned glances did not go unnoticed. If Anna Wintour wanted me to go to the gym, I'd go to the gym. Plus, she offered to pay for it, so I had to take it seriously. She also involved the likes, this is no longer the quote, by the way, she also involved the likes of 
of designer Oscar de la Renta and his closest network in sitting him down and telling him to shed kilos, which I think is just behavior that would never fly today. And I know that's what we were wondering because we were talking about this off mic just as we were prepping, which we never really do. It was quite naughty of us. But you did say I, this would never fly now, but I actually wonder if it still would behind closed doors in a in a team like Anna Wintour's. Like it would never fly publicly, but do you think it could still fly behind? I just, I don't know. I don't want to be kind of overly optimistic about the state of a workplace like this. I mean, she did send him to rehab at the Duke Diet and Fitness Center. It just sounds pretty wild and pretty fat phobic. And I- Oh, completely I, fat phobic. I, I just can't imagine a boss getting away with that kind of influence over an employee today. Yeah, I hope so. I desperately hope so because it's a pretty disgusting thing to read, isn't it? It's it's incredibly hard to read. I do want to make a point about Andre Leontelli before we move on. This man is so impressive. Like he grew up in the Jim Crow era in the south of North Carolina where segregation and racial tensions were so clear. He is one of the first, if not the first man of colour to crack his way into fashion consciousness and a fashion bible like Vogue. And I think he scrapped tooth and nail to climb his way up to the creative director position and he effectively paved the way for so many people of colour who have now come after him and I think his life and what he has been through is a testament to his character and what kind of man he is and the drive that he clearly holds and I think it's an incredible story I encourage people to go buy this book I certainly will be yeah look I have to say you've almost convinced me he can wave his magic wand and kind of piss off whoever he wants now just to round out this segment, Zara, I want to finish with one quote from Lisa Armstrong who wrote for The Telegraph about this debacle and I think this line is just so banger from Armstrong. She wrote, The scent of blood has replaced the whiff of Chanel Number no. 5 and it's open season on the once inviolable. You've called the Shameless Hotline. Please leave a message after the beep. Hi, Mission Zara. It's Trish here, Zara's mum. I just thought I would call in with the version of the joke that I told Zara when she was growing up. Uh, knowing me, I'll probably get it wrong because I'm very bad at telling jokes, but uh, here goes. Hey kids, there must be something really special and unique about that cemetery we're just passing. All the people living in this area are dying to get in there. Anyhow, take care. Great work, girls. Bye for now. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Michelle Elizabeth Andrews, before we get to that. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to make me dive straight <laughs> in. We have to talk about that voicemail. Hey, mum. Um, <laughs> it, it sounded like she'd written it down. It did, but I really appreciate it. I think it's been too long. Like we've gone this long without getting Trish on the podcast and that is a grave error in judgment. We need more Trish McDonald on Shameless. We don't. We definitely don't need any more <laughs> Trish McDonald jokes. Oh, actually, this is one thing I was going to say at the start of the show, but I did completely forget on the book. And I haven't told you this story yet, but I've been meaning to. Mum was asking me the other day about how um, the book writing was going and when it was coming out. And she said, you know, I went to the local bookshop and there's kind of like this local bookshop that I used to go to like every week when I used to live at home. And she said she was in the local bookshop and it just came up. It just came up out of nowhere that her daughter was writing a book. No. Out of nowhere. And I said, Mum, how does that just come up? They don't ask you, do you have a child writing a book? So Mum's obviously gone to the lady at the bookshop <laughs> and been like, hi, my <laughs> my daughter's writing a book. Would you be interested in selling it? I was like, Mum. Like, I want to die. The penguin salespeople would probably be like, <laughs> don't, it's not your job, Trish, to go to random bookshops. It's like the most embarrassing parent thing ever. It reminded me of when your mum called don't, your old no. high school. Your mum called your old high school and asked them to feature you in the newsletter. And then they did and I was so happy about it until I found out that mum had set the entire thing up. Maybe Vicky Andrews and Trish McDonald should be our publicists. They Maybe they should. And my mum was like, you know, next time I go to Ulysses, which is the bookstore's name, you should come in and tell them what the book is about because I didn't want to ruin what it was about. And I was like, mum, they're not... <laughs> I love our mums so much and I cherish their support so dearly. It is so dear to my heart. However, very embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Give me a story. <laughs> my first quick and dirty story for today. Takashi 69 accuses Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber of buying number one spot 
Billboard explains why that's not true. That is from CNN. So it's possible, right, to buy a Billboard number one spot? Yeah, well, it's been an allegation levelled at even Taylor Swift. There are rumours, and I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. Everyone under the sun knows that by now. There are rumours that with her first album, her parents or someone within her team purchased tens of thousands of copies of that album to shoot it to the top of the charts, and that's how people began finding her. So it is something that is known within the industry. And what I find interesting about this particular case is that, first of all, Justin Bieber seems increasingly desperate to get his singles at the top of charts. He received a lot of backlash earlier this year for kind of orchestrating a similar approach with Yummy. I remember. Yeah, he was like really, he was paying influencers on social media to play it. He was paying TikTokers to use it behind their videos. He really did kind of orchestrate hype and was called out quite bluntly for doing that. So now that he's been accused with Ariana Grande for their new single. I'm not that surprised. Takashi69 says that his team looked into it and that the vast majority of purchases across a week were purchased through six individual credit cards, which is dodgy. It does sound a bit dodgy and it's. I understand why the system exists as it does. Like you're measuring it based on sales, but if that can be thwarted, I mean, I guess everything can be thwarted. Is that a very cynical way to look at the world? I don't know. <laughs> How do you fix this? I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure like government elections can be thwarted. So I'm sure the billboard top 100 chart <laughs> is pretty malleable to that as well. I do want to say Takashi69 pointed out that his songs have had more streams and yet Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber's single has had more purchases Ah. and you would think that they would kind of match up that your purchases would be very in line with total streams. I have a question for you. Yes. What does Takashi 69 sing? Um, (laughs) You bring a story and you haven't even done your background. He's far too. I knew it. He's. I knew it. I can't now. All I know is he went to jail and he just got out and this is his first single. Takashi 99. We're meant to Does be Takashi 69. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Takashi 69. What is he? I can't. It's not even. I'm not going to lie as well. I Googled how to pronounce his name because if you spell it out, it is literally numerical six, I-X, numerical nine, I-N-E. Is that 6699 or is it 69? I'm just going to go with 69. I don't know what song it is. So, anywho, next story. <sighs> My second story. Full House star Laurie Lachlan, Mossimo Giannulli to serve prison time for college scam. That is from news.com. And welcome back to the quick and dirty Laurie Lachlan. Oh, it's been a while and I've missed you a lot. Gosh, this feels like a long time ago, doesn't it, that we spoke about that college scandal? I mean, I'm glad that they've agreed to serve prison time. I think there's been so much backlash and so many conversations. I mean, understandably about class and privilege and just how kind of gross an action is like this one. So, I mean, I hope they serve their time and learn their lesson and we can finally stop talking about it. Yeah, well, Laurie Lachlan is going to be going to prison for two months and Mossimo Giannulli is expected to go for five months. Pretty, like, I know that they did something awful, but I'm pleasantly surprised, may I say, that that is the result. I think so often we see wealthy, famous, protected individuals get away with really gross stuff. And I'm happy in this case that punishment seems like it's going to be served. Absolutely. My third story, Tones and I slams Australia's tall poppy syndrome in revealing interview. That is from Junkie. And Zara, this is a really hard interview and difficult quotes to read. I love Tones and I, like I love her a lot. And when this Junkie article came out on Friday, reading these quotes, you were reading them to me, was really hard to hear. Mm, She's basically said that she feels like the hatred is so intense that She's almost been forced to leave the country in Australia. So loud has the negative noise been around her. And I want to read out some of the quotes because even some people in this shameless community, which we adore obviously so much, are so hypercritical of Tones and I and are so keen to tell the world about that. And I think it's important to keep these quotes in mind the next time you want to put something negative about her online. Tones and I said, There's a difference between negative opinions that don't affect you, that are horrible, they don't need to be said, but if you want to say it, that's fine. But then there's really digging in and pulling out my heart and my soul and just shoving it back in my face and beating me over and over again until I'm sitting here crying in my own home. No one even understands how bad it really is. How much do we have to fucking push someone? Does someone have to kill themselves? It is so hard to hear that. Like it is 
it is genuinely devastating to read someone so talented and who seems so lovely and so uh, humble be subject to stuff that makes her just want to hide from the world. And I think it is something we spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we were like, how far does this shit have to go? Like it's so often that we only ever want to have these conversations about trolling and bullying in hindsight. Mm. Like we only want to have them in hindsight when it's pushed someone too far. When it comes to Tones and I, I can so imagine people online reading this and still being like, but I'm allowed to have my opinion. I'm allowed to comment on her music. And it's like, well, why are you so annoyed? Like, why are you so fired up about this? Why are you so stubborn? And why do you so demand that this criticism needs to be heard? Because it goes beyond the point of you needing to make a point about not liking her music. It is so far beyond that now. And I think it's so time that we have a national conversation about it. It's people rubbing their own egos. They love to be counter whatever's popular in Tones and I is the definition of popular, one of the most streamed artists on Spotify, one of the most successful musicians to come out of Australia, and therefore it becomes cool and edgy to be counterculture. And I think it's fine to be counterculture, but you need to remember the person at the centre of it is a human. You can dehumanise Tones and I as much as you want, but at the end of the day, she just told you she's crying in her own home about what she's reading about herself online. And I think what you put online about someone you have never met says far more about you than it does about Tones and I. Yeah, I agree. And I couldn't, I genuinely couldn't love Tones and I's music more and I couldn't love her more. And, and I don't know if she'll ever listen to this, but if anyone is listening to this who knows her, please tell her how much we love her and how much so many people in our community love her. And our Australian music industry would be nothing without her. And sorry to be blunt, but if you don't like her music, don't fucking listen to it. Story number four, Jane Rowe from Roe v. Wade oh made just, a stunning deathbed confession. This is a serious story. Sorry. Let me read that out again. Story number four. Jane Rowe from Roe v. Wade made a stunning deathbed confession. Now what? That is from the Washington Post. This story, I forced you to put it in. You called me during the week. I think we're tangent, sorry. How many phone calls do you think we have a week? We should add it up because I think we're over 100 a week. Uh, yeah, definitely. We for speak sure. almost all day, every day on the phone, but not in long conversations, like 10 minutes pops. 10 minute bursts. And I often call over something that could be a text message, but I just, I hate texting. I hate texting. Anyone who knows me will probably know that. I just pick up the phone, which is funny because it is so anti how millennials are branded that like millennials and Gen Z hate picking up the phone, but I hate texting. How did we get here? Okay. I got here because I was going to say, you spoke to me about this story on the phone. You said, have you seen it? Have you checked it out? Did you read it? And I said, no, you told me about it. And I was like, holy shit, that has to go on the quick and dirty this week. Yeah. So it's not strictly a pop culture story. And actually it's not a pop culture story at all. But for the those who may not have seen this around, Jane Rowe, whose real name was Norma McCorvey, challenged state laws in Texas in 1969 because she wanted an abortion and she couldn't get one. Her case ended up legalising abortion across America. And you might obviously recognise the Roe versus Wade kind of tagline because that was the name of the bill that was passed. Mm. In the 1990s, she did this very dramatic and very public flip and she became a vocal anti-abortion crusader, which obviously was a nightmare for people who were pro-choice. Well, she was the face of the pro-choice movement and then became the face of the pro-life movement. How messy and disastrous for everyone who wants to secure reproductive rights for women. Exactly. Now, in a new documentary that's being released, she revealed in a 2017 deathbed confession that she earned at least $456,000 US in benevolent gifts from the anti-abortion movement in exchange for her conversion. So she was paid to swap sides. My God. God, did, I, want, I do need to watch the documentary. I wonder if she expressed some type of guilt over that. I'm guessing if it's a deathbed confession, it's clearly something on your mind, something you want to repent. And I think the act of doing that shows that she probably very deeply regrets being bought to support the opposition. It's, it's an insane story, to be honest. It's really interesting, but it goes to show that some people really do have a price. Totally. My fifth and final story of today's Quick and Dirty. Mindy Kaling teams up with Reese Witherspoon for Legally Blonde 3. That is from the Los Angeles Times. And holy shit, am I excited. I reckon this will be incredible, particularly with Mindy Kaling at the helm. Yes. Like I feel like anything that Mindy Kaling will do, particularly in this space, will be so well received. I remember when Reese Witherspoon first kind of shared a little teaser about this. Remember she posted a tweet and it was a video of her in a pink 
pink bikini and a lilo and she was floating through the pool and mm. she's like, hashtag legally blonde three. Mm. That was in 2018. I was going to bring this up with you. It's been a long time. Yeah. So her production company obviously is the one pursuing this. She's had it on her plate for a long time. I do wonder what's happened in the two years since that have delayed it. Obviously things are now happening. They've announced that people are directing it and writing it and kind of taking charge in bringing the idea to fruition. But it is an interesting time lapse to announce it's happening and not actually announce how it's going to happen for two years. It was. I was like, that's a long time. Like that doesn't seem like a publicity teaser. You don't want two-year tail on your teaser, I have to say. This reminds me, yes. did you do your homework? Speaking of iconic movies, did you watch Centre Stage or American Beauty? I will take either one as long as you've done half of the homework. Yes. You haven't. Tell me one plot line from either movie. Centre stage is um, ballerinas that battled it out against each other. No. Okay. I haven't watched either of them. Anyway, is that all from the quick and dirty? You don't watch either. I will, I will. You won't. I was busy. Doing you don't nothing. even know what the hell happens in The Devil Wears Prada. How can I trust you at all? Which is kind of ironic. I didn't bring that up in the um, very first segment about the literal Devil Wears Prada. I know. I have seen The Devil Wears Prada, but I didn't understand your Devil Wears Prada meme. Can we jump off this? bandwagon of whatever it is well of you not watching movies maybe i'm just counterculture <laughs> i'm not at all counterculture. i'm not at all bye oh wait what oh my god <laughs> that's all for today's quick and dirty you need a break coming up after the break how influencers and sex workers are moving from instagram to OnlyFans and making millions then how covid19 decimated the media and journalism industry and where to go and what to do next but first a word from today's sponsor It's the social networking site that you've probably been hearing about non-stop in isolation. OnlyFans, a subscription-based platform for online personalities, was born in 2016 and over the last four years has cemented itself in the zeitgeist. Now everyone from sex workers to bikini models, actors and reality stars are rushing to create accounts on the platform where they charge fans $10 to $20 per month on average for exclusive racy content. Zara, when did OnlyFans first pique your interest? Well, I'd heard about OnlyFans for about a year or so, which is probably might be quite late because it launched in 2016. But I have to say it has kind of saturated my news cycle a little bit and been all around me since I think COVID-19 fell onto the world, if that's even a way to call it. But I think COVID-19 did fall onto the world and squashed it a bit. (laughs) I'm just congratulating myself for my own metaphor. (laughs) You're a great analogy. Anyway, probably not time to be celebrating analogies about the state of the world. (laughs) Anyway, I, I was quite interested, Mish, because since its launch in 2016, OnlyFans has paid out over $600 million to its creators, and I think that's a US dollar figure. So it's generating a bunch of money, and I think one of the first things that I noticed about this platform was that creators, whoever's creating on the platform, gets 80% of revenue, while OnlyFans only takes 20%. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, if you're still like, what the fuck is OnlyFans, let me give you this line. Bustle did a big overview of exactly what OnlyFans is, and they described it like this. If TikTok is an all-you-can-eat buffet, consider OnlyFans a membership-only private dining club. So exclusive content sits behind a paywall and more often than not to kind of bait fans in to actually pay for that exclusive content, it tends to be very racy and in some circumstances very sexual. Yeah, well I guess it kind of was born around a similar time that Instagram wasn't letting much racy content at all on their platform. So it is a content subscription service and it does let creators monetize their content. Historically, as you said, Mish, it's been primarily known as a platform for adult content creators. I was interested because you know how I just said to you before that it kind of did pique my interest a little more in the last few months. In the wake of the coronavirus epidemic, the content sharing platform has exploded in popularity, seeing a 75% increase in signups in recent weeks and garnering 170,000 new users per day. That's from Rolling Stone. It's a really interesting stat. And I was actually reading an explainer article on BuzzFeed News US about this. They actually spoke to some of the app's biggest stars. So Jem Wolfie, who I want to talk to you about in a second, she's actually a Perth local. She's Australian and she is the number one ranked personality on OnlyFans. But they also spoke to sex workers, Aussie Blair, Amy Louise and the Honey Badger X. And that group of people gave some reasonings as to why OnlyFans has exploded. And it's interesting. It's kind of multi-pronged. The first of all, 
Obviously, with coronavirus, we're all mostly stuck in our homes. We're going to be a little bit bored. Some of us might need to express ourselves sexually on an app, particularly if we're single. Then, of course, with social distancing rules, things like strip clubs and brothels have been shut. So the people who make those industries thrive have modernised their career. They've turned to this platform and gone, okay, well, I can't earn money in a traditional way right now. I'm going to get on this platform and I'm going to make money. And let me tell you, they are raking it in. If you are good on only fans, if you are in the top, say, 1% of creators, you're raking in tens of thousands of dollars a month. Yeah, it's not bad for the people at the top at all. I mean, I guess it also gets rid of the middleman and a lot of the admin around trying to reach people that you want to share your content with. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times from about a year ago, Mish, from Jacob Bernstein, who wrote about how OnlyFans has changed sex work forever. And he noted that Jenna Jamison, who he calls the Julia Roberts of straight porn, he quoted, even parlayed her notoriety into a memoir released by HarperCollins, How to Make Love Like a Porn Star, A Cautionary Tale. And his point in pointing to Jenna Jamison is he was talking about how the porn industry kind of struggled like a lot of media did. And a lot of media is, and we will get to that a little later in the episode. He said the title turned out to be eerily prescient. As its publisher, Judith Reagan pointed out, porn went the way of all media. It turns out everyone could do it, except that because porn was an industry of people already living on the margins of society, the effects for the performers were in many ways worse. So when it comes to a platform like OnlyFans, I think this has got to be a huge reason for its popularity. Yeah, well, it's democratising the sex work industry, right? And that's an industry populated mostly by women and women who have been chronically underpaid since the dawn of time. Is that an exaggeration? Sex work, they say, is the oldest profession and historically it's been one that's been worked in by women but controlled mostly by men and I think this is an amazing way to take the power back. I think a great example of that is the Mia Khalifa example. You might remember if you're a long-time listener of the podcast in August 2019 we talked about Mia Khalifa and an interview that she did that she ended up tweeting a lot about and being quite vocal on where she revealed that despite being the number one porn star in the world she only ever made $12,000 total in the porn industry and never saw a penny after that. Now, Mia Khalifa, particularly amongst straight men, is almost a household name. The fact she earned $12,000 off videos that probably made her bosses tens and tens of millions is stark and worrying. And that's why I'm so glad that something like OnlyFans now exists, where women can get the money that they're owed for the content they're putting out. Yeah, which brings us to another interesting point, right? Because I agree with you, it's great that this exists for the industry, but there was a very interesting piece in Rolling Stone this week that kind of suggested that a lot of adult content creators are having their accounts deleted by OnlyFans with no reason why. And they quoted a model and dominatrix by the name of Mrs. Hell, who said the top content creators on there are no longer sex workers, but celebrities and YouTubers. That's very problematic. More people into the vanilla lifestyle think that it's easy to make money on there. So it could have an impact on our ability to make a living. I, like I said before, to make matters worse, some adult content creators do feel like they're being pushed out of the platform and are reporting that their accounts have been deleted when they feel they have not violated OnlyFans' terms of service. I really hope that's not the case, by the way. I feel like sex workers and people who work in like erotic industries are the people who made this platform so popular. It'd be a real shame for the app creators and developers to then turn their backs on the very people who made their app relevant. The Rolling Stone piece made some interesting points and one was that some platforms that have existed before or still exist have welcomed and then kind of abruptly rejected not safe for work creators like Tumblr. They say Tumblr was a bastion and this is their quote of sex positive and not safe for work content and the platform started explicitly prohibiting it in its terms of service. Patreon is the same, apparently. I'm really interested to hear that about Patreon and disappointed. Tumblr, I feel like might be slightly different in that Tumblr is a website. Anyone can get onto Tumblr. You don't need to pay for it. I used to be on Tumblr. Can you tell as a 15 year old? I can tell. That one, there's not as many barriers to like children finding that kind of content. I hate to be that Pollyanna boring person, but when it's a website compared to a paywall, it's a very different set of circumstances. That is disappointing disappointing if that's true about Patreon. I think any app that builds their following based on the sex work industry should absolutely be loyal to that industry for sure. I do want to talk to you on this topic about the Jem Wolfie paradox. I touched on at the top of the podcast that Jem Wolfie is the top OnlyFans creator. She has the most subscribers. She is making millions of dollars off this platform and yet she doesn't do anything that's really racy. In fact, she doesn't really show very much at all. She's very like 
teasy. Is that a word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teasy well, I, in that she, I know what you mean. She doesn't take her clothes off, but she might like cover her boobs and like kind of tease that she's going to show you her nipple and then not. I haven't watched this, by the way. This is from other people writing articles about it. And it's kind of that idea by making people want more and stringing them along. She's having more success than the people who are literally doing sex acts on this app. And I just find that to be a really interesting paradox that it's basically an app for porn and yet the top creator doesn't show anything more than what would be allowed on Instagram. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I read that as well in the New York Times piece by Jacob Bernstein. I think he interviewed Jen Wolfie there as well. And it made the same point that the racier the content doesn't necessarily mean the more lucrative. Claire Downs wrote a pretty interesting piece in Elle as well about the rise of OnlyFans. And she wrote, contributing to the rise of OnlyFans is one harsh new reality. The influencing era is ending. Travel influencers can't travel, lifestyle influencers can't live lavishly, and fashion influencers aren't being sent clothes without any place to wear them and it reminded me I don't know if you've seen the um, news about Caroline Calloway joining OnlyFans and so Calloway has joined OnlyFans and is charging about $50 a month and the average is about 10 maybe 20 Mm. and she's copped a little bit of flack from the sex worker community for joining the platform in a way that doesn't seem very self-aware like she just doesn't seem very self-aware about the platform that she's coming into and why it's so big and who's built it up and so people were asking her to kind of recognize her privilege in this space and she said okay who else has a brand like mine and is charging $49.99 you can't just claim I'm competing with no evidence show me my competition for someone offering emotionally poignant soft core cerebral porn I'm basically unchallenged and it kind of reminded me this idea that I'm seeing around about celebrity drop-ins in Mm. um, OnlyFans or I've heard them being called tourists but these people who are kind of jumping on a bandwagon without being self-aware about why that bandwagon exists and the community that built it. It's a really interesting question. I've read a great piece by Jason Parham in Wired and he interviewed Clement Castelli who is a very famous French actor and Castelli is known for kind of like topless beach photos where women kind of drool over his abs and stuff and he was talking about how he has channeled his influencer clout into OnlyFans and how successful that has been and it's kind of positioned as like a new age form of influencing just involving sex work in many cases and I found this quote to be fascinating from Jason Parham in front of a camera and sometimes with multiple partners these influencers are no longer just influencers but digital sex deities oh that's a beautifully put together line I have one more quote for you that we can I round out the segment good with quotes. Jason Parham actually admitted that, yes, he had signed up to OnlyFans for research, but he stayed for something much more raunchy. Ah. This is his quote. I signed up for a few accounts in the name of research. Soon they became gateways to private fulfilment. I was, I realised, getting addicted. But the reason I couldn't look away was not just about being turned on. The more I watched these influences, the more I felt drawn to them as people. They were opening up and I was reaching toward it. There was a hypnotic pull, a thrill even, to what was unfolding on my laptop screen. The parameters of intimacy and fame were being gradually redrawn in front of my eyes. How good's that? Really interesting. Let us know. Are you on OnlyFans? We'd love to hear about it. I'm not yet, but who knows? Maybe in the future, Zara. Three, two, one. Zara is the Just before we quickly jump into this third segment, I have got that many DMs that nobody knows. New listeners in particular from November last year don't know what the fuck that sound effect is. That sound effect is from our Sydney live show, I believe, where I asked all the listeners to call out Zara is a beach hero. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. It doesn't even make sense to me and I'm (laughs) the one who orchestrated it. Basically, Zara came on the podcast towards the end of last year and acted like she is the queen of the beach and loves the waves and all of the creatures that exist underneath them and therefore is a beach hero and then I gave her shit about that for the next four months and well still to this day still using it okay let me get on to my segment please okay fine It's been a terrible few weeks for the Australian media industry. Last week, we spoke of BuzzFeed News shutting its operations in Australia, but it has extended so much further than that. Last week, 10 Daily announced it was closing its doors. The Australian Associated Press is due to close in June if they are not saved at the last minute by a willing buyer. Bowers in style, men's health and women's health have ceased printing until further noticed, while the print editions of Harper's Bazaar, OK and W and L have also been suspended. 60 staff were axed in the process at Bower. 
Globally, The Atlantic laid off 68 staff, Vice laid off 155. Condé Nast, Quartz and The Economist all laid off hundreds more between them. And you know what? I probably failed to include so many more. The media is in disarray and we need to talk about that. Mitch, how do you feel when you hear all of that thrown at you? I feel sad because I think we can often downplay the role that the media and good media, honest media, good journalism plays in culture and how we consider our place in the world and also the empathy we have for other people. And I feel deep sympathy for anyone in university right now who might be in their final years of a journalism or media degree and is facing great anxiety about going into the workforce. I'm thinking of you right now as is Zara, but also anyone who's been made redundant. We have people in our own community on Instagram who have reached out saying that, yes, they are one of the 10 daily journos or yes, they are one of the people who was working at BuzzFeed Australia. So it's a really tough time and it's really sad. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting as well because it feels like a really hard thing to read, the idea that everybody, and I say everybody, but it feels like everybody is being laid off when people are reading so much news. Amanda Mead wrote an article for The Guardian last week, Mish, and she said that data had found that more than 150 newsrooms since January 2019 had been closed and also found that a University of Canberra study said that news consumption had increased during the pandemic with 70% of respondents in this study saying they were accessing news at least once a day compared to 56% in 2019. So it's like people are consuming more news than ever and yet journalists have no jobs. Yeah, it's the cruel irony, right? And I'm sure some people might be confused because before I got into the media, I was very confused about how publications make money. The vast majority of publications make money almost entirely from advertising revenue. So they need brands to buy spots on their website or in their print publications and those spots pay for the staff and pay for the printing and of course everything else that goes into that media organisation. So while media consumption is up by 54% on the previous months in 2020 across the board for digital publications, that is not reflected in advertising dollars. Brands do not have the money to pay media organisations the money that those media organisations need. Therefore, they're falling over so quickly. When you have a staff of, say, 100 people to pay, those salaries add up. And if you're having no advertising revenue, you're going to be crippled extraordinarily quickly. And what's really curious about this is that you would have heard in the list of businesses that I mentioned or news outlets that I mentioned is they're not old media. Like a lot of this is new media. And a line from a Washington Post piece really stood out to me where they said even the media's businesses most savvy innovative and glamorous players are hurting I mean you see that with BuzzFeed News you see that with Vice you even see that with Quartz like these aren't just old media who haven't adapted these are people who have thrived in the digital landscape and are still struggling now. I know as well that I think the people who are forgotten and the publications that can be forgotten in this conversation are local regional newspapers. And I want to talk about them for a second as well. I came across a really interesting story that highlights just how important your local paper is to your community. So this was a story in the ABC and it told the tale of Michelle Crisp from WA, who in the mid noughties came across this realisation that birds in her area in Perth were just dropping from the sky. She reported this to the Esperance Express, who started looking into it and found that the birds were being poisoned with lead. That kick-started a nationwide story about lead poisoning, a WA government inquiry, and eventually a finding that a metals mine was responsible for the contamination. That all began with the Esperance Express, and this week it was announced that publication's future is very uncertain. Well, it reminds me a lot of the work that Joanne McCarthy did, who very recently announced her retirement, and she worked a lot for the Newcastle Herald. And she is widely considered to have played the most, one of the most crucial roles in Australia in initiating the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. These aren't big, big, big papers we're talking about. These aren't the metros we're talking about. These are the smaller ones, the smaller papers that care for their community. And I know I recommended watching Spotlight a couple of weeks ago and I know that it was about the Boston Globe and the Boston Globe is hardly a tiny paper. It is hardly a regional one. But I really have to agree with you about your point on regional papers and the ones that are being forgotten here because they are the first to go. That no one is as invested in the area they live in as much as the people that live there and work there. And I feel like we're losing that sense of community more and more because we don't have regional bulletins as much. We don't have regional radio shows as much or regional papers are being the first to shut down. They are, like I said, the 
first casualties. And these are the people I think we need to protect the most. The people that live in regional areas are the people that who most probably need to be connected, to feel seen, to be understood and to be listened to. And I think that's not a conversation we're having enough. Yeah, well, when local newspapers disappear, the stories of everyday Australians, particularly those doing it tough in drought-ravaged regions totally. of Australia, they disappear too. Those stories are are nowhere to be found when those newspapers collapse. It's really important. And then when we lose digital publications like 10 Daily or BuzzFeed, we risk losing the stories that matter to young people, the very people probably listening to this podcast right now, whether that be about abortion and reproductive rights or the rapidly rising youth unemployment rate. These publications are pivotal because they tell the stories of Australians that matter. They're not going to be the stories that are told in the Australian or the Herald Sun and we need to protect them. Yeah, and it's it's hard because you see all this disarray around you and you kind of don't know what the solution is. Like, how do we make these businesses make money? And some of you might have seen last month, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg instructed like the ACCC to urgently develop a mandatory code amid like a steep decline in advertising among publishers brought on by the coronavirus pandemic because Facebook and Google refuse to accept that they need to pay for using news content. So the proposal is that Facebook and Google pay for their news content, which is all well and good, but I'm kind of more interested right now in us as a grassroots level. Like what can people do? How is there an attitude issue when it comes to news? And I don't know if this makes me overly idealistic, but I do think there is something to be said about a grassroots attitude shift here. Like the way we consider media has changed and I think we do feel entitled to free content a little bit. I think the internet did democratise voices and it gave everybody a space to share their opinion and have a voice and I think that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we started to get a lot of that content for free and subscriber-based content wasn't as common because it didn't need to be and now we're like... I feel like we're drowning in content. I don't know about you, but we are drowning in content. And that is funny as someone who creates content for a living to say, but because there's so much choice, we didn't feel like we need to pay for it. We felt entitled to content for free, whether it be podcast or Facebook groups or news outlets or news stories or celebrity stories, whatever it might be. And I think that's quite damaging. Like I think that an attitude shift where we consider that maybe sometimes we need to pay for stuff that is important and that is well done and that is curated and well-researched matters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, think of it this way. I would say that almost everyone in my life would have a Netflix account, but how many of those people would pay for a digital news subscription? And I think we kind of need to reframe it that way in that I think culturally we're so willing to pay for TV series and movies, but we probably don't value or place enough value in the searing, important, culturally defining writing and journalism that shapes the way we think and feel about the world. And I think we need to place more value on that. I think writing in particular is such a sacred form of art and we don't pay for it anywhere near enough. And I think more people should think about where they're putting their money and can you afford to put a couple of dollars a month into a great grassroots publication? I think it is a decision that will help a lot of young journos who genuinely do good work. I was just going to laugh because what you were saying, I was realised, is not funny at all, but I've realised the great irony of us saying that we're selling a book very soon and then saying you saying that the words... That does look very transparent. I'm <laughs> we, so sorry. No, we do mean pay for the, the the New York Times if you want, if that's the kind of publication that you pay value. Ju- pay journalists. The yeah. ones who are looking at why birds are falling from the sky, obviously buy our book if you would so like to. We'd this love is not to at have, all what it meant. We would love to have you buy our book, but I mean, if you're seeing birds falling from the sky and you want to look into lead poisoning, that is the fault of mining corporations pay journalists the people who are on the ground doing the really gritty tough work invest in that stuff because ultimately it helps us all well there's another attitude change that I think needs kind of pointing to and that is I've remembered seeing like News Corp articles in my newsfeed about a really important story and the comments are calling the you know news outlet greedy or immoral for putting a paywall on an important story but of course they need a goddamn paywall or else the story wouldn't be written like it is not greedy or immoral to ask for money for a story that could change lives. It's a terrible way that it needs to function that not everybody can read a story in order for the story to be written, but there's no other business model at the moment. And I think like I keep saying, an attitude shift is paramount here. Yeah. And journalists are so chronically underpaid. Media organisations need to find ways to make money. It's an unfortunate reality. And please, if you're someone who screenshots paywalled articles and then puts them in comment sections on Facebook and stuff, please reconsider because you are effectively taking money away from an organisation that needs to pay journalists and journalists do not 
earn enough for the really gritty, tough work they do. I want to read you a quote, Zara. I went onto the conversation this week. I go on every single week because I adore the conversation. But for the first time in a long time, they had like a full banner come up. You know, when you click into a website and it has like a, like a pop-up thing that you yeah. need to click out of, it had a pop-up encouraging people to donate. I'm guessing they have been impacted in COVID-19 as much as anyone. They are non-for-profit, but of course they can still be impacted. And this is what their banner ad said. Clean information is as vital to democracy as clean water is to health. The conversation works with academic experts to inject evidence into public debate. Our only agenda is to rebuild trust and serve the public by making knowledge available to everyone rather than a select few. All our work is free to read and free to republish and we need your help to keep it that way. Please donate today. Uh, it's true. You don't have to trust every publication. You don't have to trust every journalist, but pay for the ones you do trust. Yes. We do have something that we're doing at the moment to help anyone who might be struggling in the media industry right now. We popped this up on social media throughout the week at Shameless Podcast on Instagram. If you're curious, Zara and I will be running a free, I mean, we called it a conference call. It's kind of a workshop, kind of a Q&A. It's a webinar. It's a web, sure. It's a webinar. We're calling it Podcasting 101 with Shameless and we will be giving all of our advice. Yes, we're young. Yes, we've only been doing this for a few years, but we feel like we do have brains that are filled with otherwise useless information about new media and podcasting. And we think the right thing to do is to share that with anyone who might find it helpful and to share it for free. So keep an eye on our social media channels. We will be sharing a video from that chat. We've already had a hundred people sign we up. We had hundreds and hundreds of emails and I was trying to go through them all last night and was just inundated. So thank you for everybody who has expressed interest. Like we say, we have like a hundred person cap on the webinar just because we don't want the questions to get too crazy or out of hand and we want it to stay as relevant as it possibly can and doesn't go into some rogue Q&A but like we said we'll be filming it and popping it up on social media somewhere very easily accessible so keep an eye out otherwise Mish I reckon that's all we've got time for that is all we've got time for we would love for you to subscribe to our newsletter as we said at the top of the podcast our exclusive newsletter about our new book will of course include the title and the cover and all of the juicy stuff that you might want to know first so please subscribe the link will be in our show notes we are so excited for it hey otherwise we'll be on instagram at shameless podcast or in our book club at shameless podcast book club we will see you on a thursday yay bye guys have a wonderful splendid week bye i'm gonna do that thing that annoys you Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.